I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Lisa Goodpaster, author of Alienated, When Parents Won't Parent. Children raised by narcissistic parents tend to have low self-esteem, overachieving tendencies, and or self-sabotaging behaviors as adults do to the possessive, critical, and controlling nature of their parents. Pinpointing this mental disorder can be difficult as many parents may display some narcissistic qualities. However, recognizing the common things among actual narcissistic mothers and fathers is vital. Lisa Goodpaster, parental alienation survivor and childhood trauma educator, can speak on how to identify a narcissistic parent and the detrimental effects they have on their children. She's the founder of the Stephood Project, a social awareness campaign addressing parental alienation and the danger of not co-parenting our kids. She's also a motivational speaker who helps families and professionals understand the complex issues that arise. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Nice to be here. Well, in the intro, I think uh, probably one of the most important points that I pointed out can when I said you can talk about and identify a narcissistic parent and the detrimental effects they have on their children. This is what the book is all about. So let's start with that. Identifying a narcissistic parent. How do you do that? Uh, well, from a child's perspective, it's obviously very uh, hard because you don't have the life experience. However, uh, it could feel uh, when you're a kid to a teen and adult, it can feel like you have a very controlling and critical parent. So this type of parent will want to control the relationship with another parent. So if your parents are divorced, they're going to be very, very um, critical and controlling and they'll pass it off as this is why I'm doing this because I love you. And we know that healthy uh, parents want healthy relationships for their kids. So that's one of the very first signs. I would. So, uh, all right. So I that's one of the to. first signs, controlling and critical. So if you're a kid, and this is what obviously, or what did happen to you, you came from that kind of family. Um, what were the emotions? What happened? When did you realize that your, your, uh, that you had a critical controlling parent and that was a little bit off? I mean, because it has to spark some stuff in you that's not normal and or is, I'll say, I'll use the word not normal, uh, reaction. Yeah, a trigger, yeah. Reactive, yeah, trigger. So um, so for your audience, I was alienated by uh, from my mother and my father by my stepmom. I was severely alienated by, uh, by my mother more than, by my, uh, from my mother more than my father, if that makes sense. So my relationship with my own mother was severed because my stepmom was a uh, malignant narcissist. And I say that, uh, you know, in a way not to, to freak everyone out because we know that I think it's less than 1% of our um, society is legitimately malignant narcissists. And a narcissist is a, um, and we can go into that in detail, but, the, um, but growing up when you're a little kid and your parents divorce, it was, it felt normal. Everything I thought was just, I was just a normal kid from divorce and I had a bad stepmom. The reality was, no, I had a very controlling and manipulating and 
critical stepmom that was so um, jealous of the relationship I had with my dad and didn't like that my dad was married before. And these, these, um, this may seem really uncomfortable for your audience and for parents in general, because what this, um, what my stepmom did was, and it's in my book, she wrote out my whole history. She rewrote it for her benefit. So everything that was, uh, everything that was good and, and loving and, and kind about my, my mom or my dad was, was completely severed. And I grew up believing what I was told, which was that my parents didn't care. I was a bad seed, uh, typical bad stepchild. Your parents are divorced. So it's a very, uh, it was a very oppressive upbringing, but internally, I internally, I knew something was wrong. I just, I didn't know. So when you grow up kind of like you're a Gen X there and kind of, we were all a little bit alienated and all of our parents just, you know, they only knew what they knew from their parents and you fast forward to where we are today. And, um, yeah, I grew up to prove what happened, wrote a book about it. I raised my son who's 30. Um, I did everything completely opposite from what was, um, what I had no control over because I hated those feelings of feeling, um, lonely, uh, sad, we, depressed, all those things, all like, all, all from different ages from like seven into my, until I was about 19, which is when I kind of took off and did my own thing. What was your father's reaction to all of this? I mean, what was happening within, uh, his relation, yeah, with, with, was he aware, you know, I mean, assuming that he had, may have had some awareness. Uh, yeah, my dad, you know, he, um, very empathetic, but most people would probably most, most moms. And I, I would, I agree. Um, and this isn't a reflection on my dad. Cause I, I love both my parents. If they would have known better, they would have done better. Um, I call it the ostrich parent pattern where some parents, <clears throat> when they get, re- when they remarry, or even if they're still married to their, you know, child, mother or father, when there is conflict, they don't know how to deal with it. So they put their head in the sand, they do nothing, or they ignore it. And that's what I saw growing up was that my dad would try to like intervene, he would, he would try, you know, he would say things that were uh, you know, she's just jealous, just ignore her. But that was about it. And then dropped me off at school. And I'm like, an adult is jealous of me in my own home. I don't understand. So do you think that he felt guilty at all that perhaps he, there were some, and maybe not even aware of his own feelings in terms of feeling guilty that he was. Yeah. All the time. This is why it's so important that parents, after they go through a divorce, to not uh, rush into a relationship and to do the work uh, needed to, you know, to, to overcome your, your last relationships because relationships are mirrors. All of our relationships are mirrors, whether it's our kids or our, our coaches or teachers or colleagues. And that was one of the hardest things growing up as I attached more to my dad because he was the more emotional parent. So he was really, um, 
you know, happy to see me. He was more more about making me happy. He just wanted to be happy. He didn't want to do the important part of the work, which I know now, having raised a kid, they need foundation. They need stability. Kids want, you know, kids want to be disciplined, but not all the time. They want they want a safe space. Or my dad kind of just uh, he. He didn't. He didn't grow up with a dad, so he didn't know how to be a father. He didn't want me to ever feel like I was alone, and so the way that he parented me, I think. I don't think I know triggered my stepmom. So, would you say that uh, in terms of recommend or I guess advice or helping people, which you do obviously, um, and we're going to talk about that, the Stephood Project, but uh, that parents who do get divorced have to be aware or I think there's a piece that they try to sometimes uh, not acknowledge the divorce and all the trauma that goes along with it, just generally speaking. And then, and then as you say, do the work, not try to cover it up. And we want everything to be good and happy. And, you know, those are just words, right? There's nothing, they're really, they have to be attached to something, some kind of behavior. Well, how are we going to be happy? And how are we going to do this? And, um, yeah. And as you're describing it, obviously that didn't happen. And then he hooked up with a narcissistic, uh, woman. Yeah, very, yeah, very much so. Um, uh, she did everything in her power to try to, um, destroy anything that, anything that was good about me. And when you're growing up, you don't, you're a kid, you, you don't understand. So, uh, going back to, uh, you know, that, ostrich parent where they put their head in the sand. Those to me are, um, those are things that my dad, uh, or any parent where, where they feel like, you know, they're triggered and they don't want to deal with what's going on in the moment. And they would rather ignore or deny. Those are patterns of behavior that probably started in childhood. And a lot of people don't want to go back there in childhood and investigate why do why do I act that way when my wife or or my child and my wife aren't getting along why, why do I not say something like hey this is inappropriate I'm not going to tolerate this behavior in front of my child you nip it in the bud because we have a duty to protect our kids to, so that they can grow up whole and when a child grows up watching one parent uh, appear weak or appear like it's okay to be treated that way, you're teaching your child what to expect in relationships. Well, let's get back to what you said. I want to get back to what you said, though, a few minutes ago, that your father didn't have a father. So you're dealing with Uh many different kinds of parents who've had a lot of different kinds of experiences. And what does one do if your father, and I'm going to use, I don't want to use the word weak, but really isn't prepared to, for parenthood, let's say, very, and then he marries this kind of, a, and also then marries this kind of a woman, narcissistic. How do you, what do you do if from a practical point of view? What what would a parent do, or what should a what, parent? What a parent, what should a parent do if? Can you repeat that? I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Yeah. Well, I think there are some parents who are really good at parenting, let's say, and there are others who are uh-huh. not so good for a lot of different reasons. And right. uh, we can't make the assumption that just because you've had a child, you're, you know how to parent, because we know that's not true. So 
Right. Let's take, yeah. So let's get in, let's, someone's listening and they're thinking, hmm, this seems to be, this is, was my situation or is my situation. What uh-huh. should they do as the child? What can they do? Or is there anything they can do? You mean as a child or as a parent? Well, both actually, I think, yeah. Well, um, you can, uh, for a parent, it's, if, if you actually have that thought, like in my, in my, an ostrich type of parent, do I put my head down? If, if that appealed to anyone listening, that's a good thing. That's awareness. So the first thing is awareness on how we are as parents, how we are affecting, how our parenting or our not parenting will affect or is affecting our children. That is the number one thing almost for everything is that internal awareness. It comes from the inside. It's this knowing like, uh, you know, I am not a really good cook at all and I don't pretend to be. And some parents, some people will just like, no, I can do it. I'm a good cook, but not really understanding. Okay. First you got to boil water. There's a process. So for anyone, awareness. And if you're a child and, or an adult child, because I imagine little kids aren't listening, uh, you're not alone. Uh, I think that this is all part of the generational uh, cycles of, of trauma that just continues to go from generation to generation. And now we have um, a lot more tools and understanding um, what this, what negative parenting whether it's intentional or not, has on our, on our children growing up. Because what goes into the mind also goes into the body. And sometimes even a parent that isn't around and that child needs uh, their mom or dad, that's traumatic when you can't uh, contact your, your mom or your dad. These things, um, these things will develop in um, behavioral uh, issues, reactive issues. A lot of kids will feel angry and they won't understand why there's, there's it, it can be complex, but it's all uh, human. We're all um, emotional creatures and we have emotions. And a lot of times emotions uh, tend to, especially if we weren't raised to understand what emotions are and how to work with them, even as an adult, you'll still you'll find adults that will be more intellectual than uh, it's easier for them to be more way more intellectual than it is to be emotional because we like shame people for having emotions when we can't get rid of emotions. It's like, so if we're talking about it's you're talking about awareness. We have to, it, it a parent has a, re- and I'm going to use the word responsibility. Maybe that's it. As as a parent, no matter what our background is, we have a responsibility to be aware of what we're doing and how it's affecting our children, and take a look at it. And then, if oh, it's not, yeah. yeah. To, and if it's not working, then do something about it. I have a, another question because we use, I think, particularly today, we use the word the. Um, term narcissist kind of loosely we, we, we walk around mm-hmm. you know you can be at a dinner party oh he's so narcissistic he's always doing this or she's always doing that and then the word really does get thrown around a lot and that's not what we're talking about we're talking about something far 
very serious and, and different than that. Mm-hmm. So can, yeah. So is there yeah. a way to yeah recognize the differences uh, or the difference? Oh, yeah. 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 So most, most of the time what I find in my work is that people, they do, they throw the narcissist word around way too much. And really every single human is a little bit narcissistic. We have to be because that's how we would survive. That's the selfish, that's the selfish part of us. And that usually happens, you know, in our teens, in in our twenties, this type of narcissism, malignant narcissism, this is a, uh, this is very, very, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a natural. There's a a lack of, uh, there's a lack of internal integrity. This type of narcissist, uh, is evil. There is no, uh, if they want to destroy you, they will do whatever they can to destroy you. They make it their life's mission to hurt, to destroy, to control. It's very eerie to, uh, to, to know this at, at the level I do. Um, but it's very, very serious because there is, there is something very wrong when we allow uh, children near uh, their predators. Basically what a narcissist is, a malignant narcissist is a predator. Is a predator. And also, and I can add to that, I think if you not, I mean, a predator is, is a very strong word, but I think something else, they lack empathy. They have no empathy, I think, right? There's a real, there is a lack of empathy and they are deeply flawed and, you know, and have very, very low feelings, deeply flawed with very low feelings of self-esteem. And, And, um, yes, and I'll add to that, they fake empathy. They will fake empathy. They will fake liking you. They will fake loving you. They will fake Everything about their persona is fake. It's a, it's a, it's got a, I can't imagine, like, I'm grateful I survived this type of brutal upbringing. And at the same time, it's very eerie to know that there are people out there around kids and families. And uh, according to research, they don't change these type of malignant narcissists. They, they cannot, will not change or take accountability ever. I think another thing, and you can comment on this, that malignant narcissists do in terms of their behavior is they are very, <clears throat> very often talking about loyalty. They use loyalty a lot in, in their um mm-hmm being loyal to them and that's a good thing and one must be they they, they I think that word comes up a lot and and if so you're not loyal, loyalty yes mm-hmm. you're not, if you're not uh, yeah they need you they need that no loyalty they need to know that you are believing in them because they're trying to control so they'll use loyalty they'll use friendship they'll they'll use whatever they have in their arsenal to keep their you know, they're just whatever you want to call it, their prize, their, their, uh, I'm thinking of a word, 
Like for me, I would guess I would be their victim, their victim. I know it's hard for me to even say I was a victim because when, when you know how bad a narcissist is, it, it sounds almost like they're powerful, but the reality is no, they are not in control at all. That's why they behave the way that they behave. They're conniving, manipulating, uh, so what would what given that kind of behavior and that unfortunately if if that is the kind of parent that you've been exposed to how did you what would one do what did you do we're not going to uh give away the yeah. whole book but what was the jumping <laughs> off point for you where you you realized you became aware i have to do something about this things have to change for me and that i'm the only one who obviously can do that I, probably around eight years old, I remember feeling just anguish, just, just just complete, just confused, angry. And I remember hearing my dad talk to me about his issues with my mom and all the things that little eight-year-olds don't want to hear. And right, because we're kind of like a captive audience and parents sometimes need someone to talk to. And I remember feeling internally I am never, ever going to get divorced or do this to my kids. And I, I was eight. I didn't even have a, I, I mean, I thought about that before I thought about what normal eight-year-olds think about. So right off the bat, I had internal feelings and I would just push them down. I uh, suppressed, I stayed silent to protect my dad because I was told if you say anything, no one's going to believe you. Uh, so basically, I... I think by the time I was 13, it basically I was scared until I got so sick of being scared that I was angry and that anger was, I was a very reactive, typical alienated teenager. And if you're a parent who's been alienated, you know, that type of hell is, it's like your typical teenager, but times a hundred. So my, my reactions were always disproportionate. Like if I broke a pencil, you would think that I broke my leg. So there was all these like confusing emotions and anger. And then um, I grew up and I, I got pregnant, got married, and I got the hell away. And that was the first escape. But to fast forward, um, I remembered where my stepmom kept the script that brainwashed me away from my, my mom and uh, my dad in a way, but I was more severely alienated from my mom. And I remembered it and uh, I asked my dad to bring it to me and it had been in her nightstand for 27 years. So the, in my book, the first chapter is everything everything that my stepmom wrote, all the lies along with the truth. And it just shows how sick and twisted and delusional um, a malignant narcissist is. Can we fast I forward wish. now? Well, can we fast forward uh-huh. to, well, we'll kind of Let's leave go. everybody hanging with that uh-huh. one. <laughs> um, yeah. What, yeah, you, you're the founder of the Stephood Project. So when did that come about? How did it come about? And what are you, and obviously, what kind of work are you doing? So um, the, the Stephood Project is an awareness project that is bringing um, awareness to uh, 
parents who um, don't co-parent. Because my thing was that my parents never, they couldn't co-parent. And had they co-parented and set more of a healthy foundation, they would have protected me from my stepmom. Because And so essentially that's what I did for my son was that um, he had a positive relationship with me and his dad and he grew up with two step-parents, his stepmom and his stepdad. And um, both his dad and I parented. We didn't allow um, divorce drama to interfere with what was best for our son. Uh, so um, that's what I did. And um, the stephood project, again, is bringing awareness on the importance of not co-parenting and what goes on for kids in our mind and body and how that that can, that can be very detrimental. Uh, and with that, I also wrote the book, Alienated When Parents Won't Parent. And I took what was horrible that happened to me so that um, it doesn't happen for any other kids and families so they can understand. So all parents that are thinking of getting a divorce understand uh, the, the hell that your kids will go through if you guys don't co-parent. Get divorced, yes but keep your child's attachment and foundation uh, intact. And that can be done. And obviously it can be done. You, you're here to tell us your story and it, you, you're doing it. Um, and obviously you've done that with your son. You said he's 30 years old. So I'm assuming that uh-huh. if, he, if he were on the show, he would be, we would be talking with him as well. And he would, I would assume, validate a lot of what you're saying. Absolutely. He just, uh, I was reading his Christmas card actually. And, um, he, he, uh, it's very touching. He, he didn't know until this didn't happen. He didn't realize I this he didn't realize what had happened or myself until he was 24 years old. So it was really hard for him to see me kind of unravel like I did because it was kind of like a big, I call it a mine F. And you find out, wait, half half my life was all based on lies. Wait, my mom really cared about me. This, this, the 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 level of um, evil is is pretty sick. But my son would probably say, um, I know he would say that. um, He says that he thinks about me, and he it's helped him to know how much I had to sacrifice for him. And that I, I'm the definition to him of strength. And it, when things get hard, he thinks about what I had to go through. So it helps him. It was something like that he had said in the card and it was just very touching. And, you know, when I'm with my son, I try to keep it all about him. Uh, well, you're the, it, you're the that, good mom. You're the good mom that you, that's obviously that you didn't have <laughs> for yourself. You know, I hate to I, cut you off, but we only have a minute left. So I want people uh-huh. to read the book and hear your whole story. And I, I've been talking to Lisa Goodpastor, and the title of her book is Alienated When Parents Won't Parent. So just give us a website or websites we can go to for more information about the book and about you and about uh, the Stephood Project. So you can find me at the stephoodproject.org. Also on social media, Lisa Goodpastor, uh, Lisa Goodpastor on Instagram, Facebook, and, and TikTok. 
And that's where you can find me. And my book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart.com, and where all books are sold. That's great. Thanks so much for being on the show today and, and uh, sharing you, your story with us. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Barbara Fagan, author of My American Dream, A Journey from Fascism to Freedom. In July 1940, Barbara was a two-year-old toddler when she fled with her parents from Nazi Germany, uh, risking their lives with only $10.50, the clothes on their backs, and what they could carry, and with no idea where they would settle and how they would make a life for themselves. Over 70 years later, she made an incredible discovery. Her father had kept a journal of their escape from Nazi Germany. Her parents had rarely spoken of their escape and had never mentioned her father's journal, and she remembered nothing of their passage. There had been a gaping hole in her family's history, and her father's journal would help to fill it. She shares a memory of resilience, grit, and grace that starts with the entire text of her father's journal, relating in his own words the terrifying details of the family's escape. Uh, Barbara graduated from uh, Whitman College, earning a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science, and completed a graduate program in business administration run jointly by Harvard Business School and Graduate School. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Barbara. Thank you so much. Well, that's quite a journey, and you've had quite an exciting life. Uh, boy, I recommend this book. It's it's. Uh, it's it's also timely. We're talking, you know, in the context of what's happening now with immigrants and refugees and all of that. So, um, you've, I guess, lived that journey. So, where should we start? I mean, you were two and a half years old when you were forced to leave Berlin, um, and right, and yeah. knew nothing about it. <laughs> so you were, and you had absolutely, yeah, two and a half. You wouldn't, I guess, recall anything. At what point did you begin to remember? Because you 
sometimes some of those memories do come through when you get to be three, four, five years old. Well, when when we left Berlin, uh, we went on this this uh, as I know now from my father's journal, we went on this really terrifying, horrific, seventeen day train trip uh, from Berlin through Lithuania, Russia, including Siberia, China. Korea and Japan, and then we went on a two-week trip across the Pacific Ocean on a Japanese ship called the Hikawa Maru, and we landed in Seattle. And at that point, my my father had no idea what would become of us or my mother, and um, you know, no money, no connections, no nothing, but absolutely thrilled to be in the United States, the land of the free. And I think they they felt that one way or another they would make it work. So they were very fortunate that uh, a Quaker organization in Seattle helped my father find a job at the then Sears Roebuck Farm Store in Chehalis, Washington. It's a small town in southwest Washington, uh, a town of 5,000, where my sophisticated Berlin parents settled. And... Um, you know, I, I grew up in Chehalis, and I certainly remember my life there. Uh, I think that's where I feel my life began, my life in America and my life, because that's, that's what I begin to remember. Uh, we were a very strange little family in Chehalis. This was a town where generations of people had lived for, for, for years and years, and there was no one like us in this town. This little refugee family who spoke no English, who had nothing. You know, I wore hand-me-down clothes from very kind neighbors that my mother worked to sort of remodel to fit me. And I was focused on, completely focused on becoming an authentic American girl. That's what I wanted more than anything else. And that's all I really thought about. Um, I didn't think about, you know, I, I, I had no knowledge and no thought about the past and about the trip. I was just concerned about going forward and becoming an American. Yeah. So your journey started in America, whereas your parents' journey started way before that, being forced to leave Nazi Germany. And just a little bit of the history, your your mother was Lutheran, right? And so, yes. yeah. Yes. So that made it easier or more difficult to get out of the country? It was complicated for your father to get visas for all three of you. Yeah. I I think one of the problems was um, my father had been in the German Air Force in World War I, and he'd been in an airplane crash, and um, he felt that he had given to Germany, so Germany would always give to him. And he really didn't feel the need to escape until it was very, very late. It was July of 1940 when we left. And before that, um, my mother had a, had a very good job. She was an executive assistant to the head of a publishing company. My father was not allowed to work. Uh, he was Jewish. He had, he stayed home. He, he looked after me. Um, he, took me out to play in a churchyard across the street from uh, the apartment that my parents lived in. And there was a yellow bench, as there were, for Jewish people to sit on, and they were to wear their yellow stars 
Well, my father wouldn't do that. He wouldn't sit on the bench. He took his chair from his apartment and um, sat on that, uh, really not completely understanding how dangerous this was. So my mother really was the breadwinner for the family. Uh, and finally, my father really understood that we had to get out. And then it was very difficult uh, to get out at that time. He finally got visas for us. Um, I think one of the problems was that my father was Jewish, my mother was Lutheran, and I was sort of nothing. Um, you know, so uh, it, it was just very difficult for them, first of all, to get visas. Secondly, to get money. German, uh, only American money would be accepted for passage. And finally, they, he, he got passage on an Italian ship across the Atlantic. And just when the time came to go to Italy to take the ship, there was no more traffic across the Atlantic because of the German submarines. So then he had to start all over again. And it was, it was very terrifying. It was very difficult to get a sponsor. It was very difficult to get money for passage. He had a sister in New York who sent money for his passage, but not for my mother's or mine. So he had to kind of figure out, you know, how how was he going to do that? And once again, uh, the Quakers were very helpful, as were um, other religious organizations. So it was a complicated, terrifying, scary time. My mother was afraid to tell her boss that they wanted to escape because she wasn't sure would he tell the Gestapo. Uh, and finally, she she did tell him, you know, very close to the time that they left. And he was very supportive. So she was very grateful for that because she didn't know, you know, kind of how that would go. So it was a difficult, difficult time. It's amazing that when I, you're describing your father and all that, what, what he had to navigate to get out of Nazi Germany, the words, and maybe I mentioned them in the intro, but resilience and grit and grace and, 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 and timing, I guess, too, right? I mean, and incredible determination. You know, he talks in, in, his, in the text of his, uh, his journal about having to go to Hamburg. You know, he tried to all kinds of things to get visas and to get the appropriate documentation. And he had to go to Hamburg and he talked about the bombs in Hamburg and he had to spend the night in a bomb shelter underground in Hamburg, you know, hoping and praying that he would he would live to the following day when he could get the papers that he needed. The whole thing just sounded so terrifying and it was so sort of stunning and shocking to me that I'd known nothing about this until just a few years ago. Uh, it, just stunning to me. I mean, it just told me so much about my parents' character that I'd never even thought about. I was so focused on, on becoming an American myself. I never thought about how courageous they were, how brave, uh, how determined, and what perseverance they had. And they just had incredible optimism. And as you said, Catherine, resilience, because there were, there were many downs as, as well as a few yeah. ups, but you know, they had to keep pushing forward. And so they did. And they, they felt, you know, they, there was no money. As I said, my father came with, with $10 and 50 cents. And when he finally got this job at Sears Roebuck, it paid $17 a week. 
but he and my mother felt that if they lived frugally, um, they would be able to make a life. And so they did. I'm, you know, as I reflected during the writing of this book, I felt so proud of them. Why do you think they didn't share their stories or even bits and pieces of the story? Like you said, you had no idea. You just wanted to be an authentic American and you did become an authentic American, very, uh, successful. And I mean, your whole story is, is, uh, an incredible story. But anyway, why do you think they didn't share anything or didn't feel they needed to? Well, I, I think probably several things. I mean, I don't fully know the answer to that question, but I think they were focused on moving forward. Uh, you know, they too wanted to become Americans and that's what they were focused on. Uh, you know, they, they, and they had family still in Germany and they were very worried. My mother had, uh, her mother and two sisters and my father's parents were still there. And of course this was wartime and, and terrible things were happening, particularly to Jews. My, my, uh, my father's parents ultimately were separated and, and each taken to a different concentration camp. And they were murdered in the concentration camps. And they were, they, my parents, um, you know, they were, they were focused on trying to make a life in America. And then my mother had pretty serious health problems as well. And they had to, they had to kind of concentrate on that. So, um, I don't fully know the answer. I think probably part of it is, is that they wanted to uh, sort of suppress, repress those terrible memories. Uh, I don't really know, but those are some of my thoughts. And I I think sometimes, I don't know if this is true or not, but that is kind of typical, or the experiences that I've had with um, uh, my parents' friends who uh, were forced to leave Germany, uh, Austria, uh, with the same, not talking about it, not talking about their experience, but like you're saying, want to just, they're in America, and that's where they want to be, and they want to forget it. Actually, my father was a, a captain in the Navy in World War II, and he never wanted to talk about it either. He can't, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and was born in America, but you know, didn't want to talk about his experience as a cap, as a yeah. So uh, that whole generation, I think, was kind of uh, quiet. I guess is the word. I don't know. Um, so let's well, get I back. Think there's such horrible yeah. memories, you know, and and yeah. I think, you know. The idea was to move on to something positive and to make a positive life, uh, you know. And and I know my parents were were determined to do that. I mean, they were focused on could they ever buy a house, and they were so thrilled when they finally had enough money saved that they could buy this tiny little house that I grew up in. And then when my father bought a car, um, he wrote a letter to his parents very early on. And he said, you know, in America, he said, even the shop girls have cars. So he was just so excited when he had enough money. You know, they saved like crazy. And when he had enough money to buy his Studebaker or his Studi, as he called it, um, because that was an important symbol of becoming an authentic American. And at the same time, from a, from a sort of a reality point of view, it was, it was a way to have re- real freedom, real freedom to go where you wanted, to see what you wanted, to, you know, take trips, to take his family around. 
um, those were those were things that were really really important, and you know they were focused on on how to make a life for for their family, and also uh, you know making choices. You 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 have choices to make, lots of choices, and they're your choice. You're free to make those choices, but then you made choices that uh, put you in positions of obviously different kinds of challenges, but where you became very successful in the context of a lot of discrimination as a woman and being a very powerful woman. Uh, they described you as the, or one of your chapters, I guess, the mad woman, like after mad men, you were in that business. <laughs> right. the, yeah. <laughs> many levels of madness. <laughs> yeah, many levels. You've been living a very mad life, I guess. Right. Uh, but exciting. <laughs> Uh, yes. No, it's been yeah. a great life. It has very been. exciting. Oh, but you, but you are always able. Like I'm going back to your father's perseverance and resilience, and you were the same kind of woman. So, can we just talk about some of those things that you challenged you? Um, from sure. The begin- yeah. Like uh, well, being yeah. Go ahead. The, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say I was talking about uh, the. Uh, career, your career, and you had three children mm-hmm. and a husband and a great marriage, and then things changed. Let's first, you know, when he became ill. So, but what about the business? I mean, because I, you know, you were here. You are in well, a man's world. Yeah. The, the the first the first thing was when I when I uh, was getting ready to graduate from college, there were essentially three options for women. Uh, maybe four. Um, you, we could become teachers, nurses, uh, typists, or we could get married. And you wouldn't do any two of those at the same time. And none of those really interested me um, at that point. And um, I, I thought, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I had always worked, and I loved working, and I loved the idea of business. So I heard about this program that was run by the Harvard Business School. So uh, the first thing to note was that the Harvard Business School did not accept women at that time. They had a separate program that was identical to the program, the MBA program uh, that they had for men, uh, the same classes, the same professors, but it was not taught at the Harvard Business School. It was taught at Radcliffe across the river in Cambridge. So, I mean, I didn't think too much about that. I, I applied to the program. I was accepted. I went to Boston, and it was just the most fabulous, mind-opening experience uh, I, I mean, I'd grown up in a town of 5,000, near nothing. And so here I was in Boston at the Harvard Business School, or a program run by the Harvard Business School, where I was learning and meeting all kinds of interesting people and learning really so much about business. It, it was just great. But just one little anecdote when I was there, we women were known as girls. The men, of course, were called the men at the Harvard Business School. We were called the girls. Um, and we were not allowed to go to any of the classes at the business school, but um, we were invited to, they had wonderful speakers, you know, the sort of the, the titans of business, and we were invited to go to hear the speeches, and there were cocktail parties after the speeches, and then there were dinners for a few select people, a few select men from the business school, the, the honored guest, always hosted by one of the professors from the business school. And lo and behold, I was invited to one of these dinners, and I was so thrilled. So I, I 
got all dressed up and I went marching off to the Har- to the Harvard Club in Boston where the dinner was, went up to the front door and the doorman said, oh no, you can't come in here. I said, well, I'm invited to a dinner here. Oh, I'm sorry. This is just for men. I said, well, I'm invited to a dinner here. He said, well, you have to go around to the alley and you go through the kitchen and then you'll be able to get to your dinner. So <laughs> I didn't think too much about that. I was so excited to be at the dinner. I, I did all that. Um, but that was sort of what the world was like in those days. Well, was that, a defined, job, was that a defining moment for you? I mean, here you are. No. No. I mean, no. you know, as I said, I was so excited to be at this dinner with this group of people. I didn't think to have it be a defining moment. You know, only in reflection did I realize what it was, you know. Um, But moving on to my first job, which was at the then Vic Chemical Company, now part of Procter & Gamble, um, I I wanted to be in marketing. And, um, you know, really the the major jobs in marketing that are career path stepping stones are those with profit and loss responsibilities. Well, women could not get those jobs. Um, It just wasn't possible. So my only way into marketing was through market research. And I was very thrilled to get this job at the chemical company as a market research trainee. And I worked there for a year and, you know, always got good feedback about my my, uh, performance. And I thought, well, it's time for me to go and talk to my boss about um, my career path plan and compensation and so on. So I made an appointment and nervously went in to see him. His name was Tom, very friendly, lanky guy, you know, and I said, very seriously, Tom, you know, I've been here a year. I want to talk to you about my career path. And he sort of stared at me for a moment, and then he just threw his head back and started roaring with laughter. And I said, well, why are you laughing? Well, he said, there is no career path. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, no, he said, they um, get married, have babies, and leave. I said, they who? Women. I said, well, Tom, I went to business school. I do plan to get married. I plan to have babies, but I went to business school. I plan to build a career. Well, he said, Barbara, if that's what you want, you're going to have to leave because we can't give that to you. And so I left. And I found my way into the advertising business, which was fabulous. <laughs> it was a fabulous <laughs> move. So just moving on to my, my first agency job, which I, which I loved, um, I was married at this point and, and was pregnant. And I thought, gee, it's time for me to go and tell my boss what my plan is. I want to uh, just go back for one second to the boss who told you there is sure. no career here for you because you are a woman. Yeah. It's over. It doesn't matter whether you went to business school or not. We don't care. Uh, You didn't let him define you. I always think about that because I think a lot of uh, women or people in those kinds of positions do let people like that, you know, do let, let's say this, the head of the company define you and and Mm -hmm. don't go and don't go on and don't say, well, okay, I'm not wanted here, but I'm going on to next. And um, it's obviously... Maybe going back to your father, there's something about him that was in you and you were able to do that uh, because you, you know, certainly no one was supporting you 
or it doesn't sound like there was anybody supporting you. <laughs> Certainly not in my <laughs> not, job. No, no, not at your job. Yeah, exactly. So not in my job. No, I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that that. You know, I think my father's life and his and my mother as well. My mother was, you know, kind of a force of nature in my life as well. I, I think their values and their the way they lived their life certainly were models for me, you know, as I went forward. I didn't think about all this consciously, but I'm sure it, it just sort of osmosed into me. Um, you know, so and and I kind of knew that I want. I mean, I clearly knew that I wanted to have a career. That's what it was all about. So, um, you know, I knew what I had to do, and I did it. And and since we only have four minutes left, uh, the audience okay. has to read the book. Um, you went on to get married. I'll just say that, and had your three boys, um, but and had a, a a wonderful marriage. I mean, it's a, like. You know, you met the right person, and then I don't want to say tragedy. I don't know if I should use that word, but um, well, it was certainly a shattering experience. There was the before and after your life, yeah, before and after with your husband. Um, Maybe we should uh, just um, not talk about that right now. Tell us what, um, because people do need to know where they can get the book. And, um, or, or listen to the book. Can we do that too? Is it on audible? It's not on audible. The, the, um, the launch date for the book is January 16th. So it'll be available at, um, bookstores, wherever people buy their books. Uh, it can be pre-ordered now. Uh, everyone can learn more by going onto my website, Barbara Sagan, S-E-I-G-I-N, all one word, uh, dot com. And, um, you know, that that has links to pre-orders as well. So I hope people will read it, and I hope they enjoy it. And very importantly, I hope they feel inspired by it. I definitely felt inspired by, by it. I did get to read it because your PR people sent me the PDF, so I did read it. It is very inspired. It is inspiring. So um, I recommend the book highly, and I it, it's qu- yours is quite a story. It, it's a... Um, boy, there are a lot of chapters in the book, but there are all the chapters of your life. You, you really <laughs> <laughs> had a yeah an exciting journey, I guess one would call it. But anyway, so thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been really um, great to hear you share part of your story. Um, and, well, thank uh, you so much, yeah. Catherine. I really yeah. appreciate having had the chance to talk with you. Yeah, good luck with the book, January 16th, everybody. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 